Christian nationalism refers to a, a, a self-conscious Christian nation, so a, a people group saying we are Christian, and then acting out, acting um, in light of that, meaning we're mm-hmm. Christian, so we're going to act for our good. So this is what nations do generally is they, they say they basically organize politics and all that, and they arrange themselves for their good. I'm saying as a Christian people, you're not just going to seek the temporal things of life, which are good, like you know, being able to exercise your vocation and the good of family life and all that. Um, you're also going to seek after uh, within the way you order yourselves as a people for Christian like specifically Christian ends. So mm-hmm. this would include things like, I think, Sabbath laws, which would, um, on, on Sundays, would essentially, uh, we could talk about this more, but it essentially kind of close down businesses and uh, an emergency and essential services. And that would be a way of not forcing people to attend church or do any sort of worship, but it would be kind of a, rem- a reminder for the people that this is what this day is for. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Nick Solheim. I'm the COO of American Moment. And today I'm joined by Stephen Wolf, the author of The Case for Christian Nationalism. But before uh, we get to Mr. Christian Nationalist himself, I want to direct your attention to uh, a couple important things American Moment related. Uh, Please check out our website, AmericanMoment.org, for all things programming related uh, and all the new kinds of content that we're putting out. Uh, we have obviously our podcast, but also uh, Amcanon, our uh, content collation platform. Uh, we pull together all the articles and books that we've read that radicalized us. Um, so highly recommend you check that out. Uh, you can also find more information about Uh, Our programming, the uh, Fellowship for American Statecraft, which will be this summer, uh, the Foundations of American Statecraft, our certification program, and AM Fridays, our summer intern training program. Uh, Feel free to email uh, info at americanmoment.org if you have any questions about uh, any of those programs or any of the things that you uh, see on our website. Um, So as I said at the beginning, uh, today we had uh, Stephen Wolf, who is the author of The Case for Christian Nationalism. Uh, you uh, may have seen uh, 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 some people saying things about Christian nationalism online. Uh, we're here to get the story from the man himself. Um, so uh, Stephen Wolf is a Christian political theorist and the author of The Case for Christian Nationalism. Uh, he has written for Chronicles Magazine, First Things, American Reformer, Mere Orthodoxy, and other publications. He is a member of the James Madison Society at Princeton University, and he lives in North Carolina with his wife and four children. We will go now to Stephen Wolf. Stephen, thanks for coming on the pod. Yeah, thanks for having me. So uh, I think a lot of people are going to be very interested to hear uh, how you've gotten uh, where you are. Um, We have Mr. Christian Nationalist himself on the show. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, about your history, um, how you got to the place where you're um, writing these treatises on Christian political thought. Yeah, well, um, I guess we should start in high school when I was an atheist, right? So, um, yeah, I wasn't grew up in Christian home, uh, and I was an atheist in high school. Um, but my sister became a Christian, and I polarized and became even more atheist. Uh, and I became a Christian seventeen, eighteen, around that time frame. Um, then, and uh, from there, it was kind of a Baptist uh, tradition, and uh, at that time. I was definitely kind of a mainstream sort of conservative. I uh, was a I was a uh, George W. Bush fan in mm. those days. Um, and you called him at an event you spoke at today a war criminal, which was yeah, yeah. Awesome, I, didn't, I, I didn't plan on saying that, but I, I did say that. Um, I, I do think that the Iraq War was um, a uh, was unjust on, and uh, yeah, it, it bothers me to think about it. Um, yeah. I was in the military, but um, friends killed other people. So anyway, uh, the it's uh, now you're getting me off track here, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, I was like kind of a mainstream uh, conservative back in the day, uh, and from there uh, I became uh, influenced by people like Pappy Cannon and the Paleo Conservative uh, crowd. Um, read Chronicles magazine for a long time, American Conservative, and uh, eventually uh, now I'm Presbyterian. Um, and I in that, in that sense, I've kind of always been 
um, some a, a sort of American nationalist uh, within a sort of paleoconservative uh, variety, even though a lot of paleocons don't like the word nationalist. Um, some do. And so I've, I've been influenced by them. And uh, the how did Christian how did I start uh, thinking and writing about Christian nationalism? Um, well, I had I randomly said on Twitter, what do you guys think about what, what do you think if I wrote a book on Christian nationalism or something like that? And people are like, yeah, they want, you know, and then uh, that's when Canon book, Canon's Pre Canon Press uh, contacted me and said, yeah, we want you to they just send a proposal. And so I started thinking about it more and I realized I'm a Christian and a nationalist. And um, I believe that the the government, civil government and culture and society ought to be Christian in some some respect. And so, yeah, I'm a Christian nationalist. And from there, I that's when I started writing the book and developing the ideas and articulate it. Um, so that's where we are now. And now the, the book's out there and you can you can buy it. <laughs> yeah, you can well, buy you it. Have. And you should buy it. Yeah, you should buy it. Um, uh, not everyone gets a very nice advanced reader copy sent to them. So, yeah, you yeah. know, you, you should buy it. Um, I, I'm, I'm interested to hear more. You know, you were talking about um, Pat Buchanan, paleoconservatism. Hmm. Around what time frame would this, would this have been? Because if we're talking, you know, like pre-2015, 2016, pre-Trump, I'm curious yeah. to hear more about kind of your ideological formation in that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was, I, I was at, at, at times uh, when I was around 18, you know, to 20, I was kind of captured by the idea from the rhetoric of the time. Uh, and you see this on like the Hannity talk shows and this early, early 2000s, um, 2002, 2003, 2004. Uh, and I was captured by the idea that we could actually have foreign adventures and we could fight these wars and and uh, fight for other people's freedom. And there was sort of no, sort of this no, um, nobility about it. And then I became uh, kind of disaffected with that, realizing that, well, America does have, I think, good principles and we do have a good political tradition, uh, but those aren't something that's easily transform, trans transferable uh, across the uh, across the world and certainly not through you know military adventures and so from there that that's where the paleoconservatives really began to influence me uh, and that that shift away from foreign interventionism and in in doing that also this idea that you have a particular that this like this uh, particular culture particular way of life if you don't think that that your country can go to war to kind of recreate the entire social and political system of another country. Well, that's because these these ways of life are actually deeply kind of entrenched with the people. And there's something very particular about it uh, that we all have a sort of common humanity across the world, but how uh, how we relate to others is very kind of particular. It's um, social, it's developed of, uh, through culture and tradition. Uh, and so it, and that, that kind of uh, lends itself well to the form of Christian nationalism that I advocate, which is not simply that, okay, if you're a Christian, you're in this thing called Christian nation, but actually um, the the nation of a Christian nation itself is a particular thing, a particular people with particular traditions, a particular way of life. And so you can have many different Christian nations uh, and each one of the, each one of those nations being kind of unique and different, um, different traditions, but all at the same time being uh, being Christian. Yeah. Uh, and that's where, you know, that's really kind of one of the main points of the book. And I, I think in that way, it's in that sense, it's been kind of controversial as well. Uh, but that I think that flows really from uh, the paleoconservative background. Yeah. In, in, in 2015, 2016, you know what? I mean, we're. Were any of these guys Christian nationalists? What I mean, what were you thinking about? I know you hadn't written the book yet, obviously, yeah. but what were you thinking about? I mean, the what was it? Seventeen candidates we had at that time. Yeah, well, back then, like the the term wasn't, as I remember, wasn't entirely on my radar. Yeah. Um, I, to someone at, at an event I went to uh, recently, they said, well, you know, people weren't identifying uh, with this term before. Why all of a sudden now? And that that itself is a good question. Um, but uh, I think a lot of people like myself came to discover that, you know, that term does actually kind of describe or does kind of capture sort of things that I, I believe, even though it was used originally as a, like a term of derision. It was used as a term to kind of um, uh, 
denounce certain people that mm-hmm. are at least I think in some cases imaginary people uh, by basically by the American regime. Uh, so in that sense, usually when people use it, they use it as a way to kind of harm, like put people on the fringe. Yeah. But then as I thought through the term and thought through, you know, what do I believe? I, I thought it actually made, you know, again, it made, made some sense. Um, so, uh, so yeah, like in, in 2016, 2017, uh, there, I don't know. I don't, I mean, maybe I don't remember anyone actually identifying with it back then. Sure. Um, I think more what I what I'm meaning to ask is, you know, who had, um, you know, policy proposals or in the way that they acted Mm. at that time, um, looking back at it retrospectively, you know, knowing what you know now, um, what I'm trying to get at is, is Trump a Christian nationalist? (laughs) Okay. Uh, that, you know, I, I think he might be partway there. Um, in the sense that, that he's a nationalist and he he's all about kind of putting America first, mm-hmm. uh, is he is he a, a Christian nationalist? Um, uh, I would probably say no. Uh, just because, it, as I understand Christian nationalism, it is that the idea that that you your nation self identifies, understands itself as Christian, and they would pursue uh, their good as Christians, which mm-hmm. would in- includes policies. Uh, that would kind of in- encourage people to attend church, uh, encourage um, people to uh, seek out essentially the mean- means of grace. And uh, so in that sense, I don't think Trump would be a, a nationalist, uh, strictly speaking. And that's actually that's actually OK. Uh, and I uh, because he he was obviously the president uh, of, uh, you know, of the federal level. And a lot of the sort of things I'm talking about with Christian nationalism can should probably come about at the more local and, and state levels. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, this goes to one of the misunderstandings is a Christian nationalist trying to trying to essentially establish church at the federal level, which then would require you to throw out the Constitution as understood pretty much from the beginning, not not just its more recent kind of misinterpretations. But uh, And no, I, I'm not saying that. And I don't think anyone who says they're Christian nationalists actually – uh, uh, would would affirm that. Um, yeah. It's more of uh, more uh, going back to the founding era where there were established churches at the states, where there were actually religious tests for office at the state level and also other lo- local levels. Uh, and kind of looking at that and saying there is a compatibility between the First Amendment with regard to disestablishment at the federal level, while at the same time having a government uh, affirm or government kind of uh, support religion at the more local and, and state levels. Yeah. So the point being is, yeah, okay, Trump, Trump's at one level. What's more important is that you'd have these leaders at the lower levels uh, or the state or, or county or town level. Yeah, I think one of the, um, one of the things that's made uh, the debate over Christian nationalism so contentious was that, is that uh, we don't really have like an agreement on definitions yeah. on um, what Christian nationalism is, what it isn't. Um, you've kind of danced around it a, a, a little bit, but tell us, you know, in, in your words, um, sum up the book, make people want to buy it. Um, uh, what What is Christian nationalism and what is it not? Okay, let's start with what it's not. Um, what's interesting is you have these sociologists who write on this, who um, mm. I, I think what they're doing is that they're, they're finding that they can become very important to the regime because they can, oh, I'm describing this term and the regime wants this term so they can denounce people. Uh, what's interesting is that some of their criteria for Christian nationalists would even fit me very well. So um, would, would, would I want, um, like, would, would I, do I think the Constitution is like inspired? Like, no, I don't think it's inspired, though. Some, some, someone might, um, some people might affirm that, not having a good doctrine of inspiration, all that. But so, so that, that doesn't fit, uh, that definition doesn't fit very well. Some people would then say that what I'm arguing for is to make the kingdom of God basically imminentize the eschaton, as Eric Vogel would say, or bring heaven to earth, or um, uh, or what's called an over-realized eschatology sometimes. Yep. That's actually not what I'm saying at all. I, I follow the old Protestant tradition where they would keep these things separate. 
Uh, and so I, I'm not trying to then bring the kingdom of God to earth in a, in a visible way. That's that's for God to do in the future. Um, but what I do uh, believe and that my definition is that uh, a, a Christian nationals refers to a, a, a self-conscious Christian nation. So a, a people group saying we are Christian and then acting out, acting um, in light of that, meaning we're mm-hmm. Christian. So we're going to act for our good. So this is what nations do generally is they they say they basically organize politics and all that and they arrange themselves for their good. I'm saying as a Christian people, you're not just going to seek the temporal things of life, which are good, like you know, being able to exercise your vocation and the good of family life and all that. Um, you're also going to seek after uh, within the way you order yourselves as a people for Christian like specifically Christian ends. So mm-hmm. this would include things like, I think, Sabbath laws, which would, um, on, on Sundays, would essentially, uh, we could talk about this more, but it essentially kind of close down businesses and uh, of an emergency and essential services. And that would be a way of not forcing people to attend church or do any sort of worship, but it would be kind of a, rem- a reminder for the people that this is what this day is for yeah. um, and you should do it. And, and this is like a relatively recent phenomena that we like don't do some, I mean, like, um, you know, blue, blue, yeah, blue laws, blues, yeah, you know, yeah. are like a, a relatively common thing, you know, up until the last couple of decades, right? Yeah, I mean, even like the Supreme Court uh, in the 19th century, at least, affirmed that um, Sabbath laws were okay. And, and as I understand, it's still actually permissible today because they, they see it as a, you know, a day of rest. It's not religious. And in itself, it's actually a secular sort of thing. So... I, I think, you know, if that's what the court wants to say, fine, I'm still going to say it's religious. Um, and so in the end, the, uh, we should, I think, have Sabbath laws for that purpose, mm-hmm. for a, a religious end. Um, and uh, so that's just one one uh, way that a Christian people can seek after their good or this heavenly good, this higher good yeah. through policy. Yeah, let's talk about the, the Sabbath laws in particular, because I okay. think that's a, a great example. Um, I, I think, you know, as as upset as um, some online whiners might be about the things that you've said, um, you know, online or whatever in your book, they may even be, you know, more upset about the fact that you just dared to say that we should have Sabbath laws <laughs> and that, um, you know, uh, you could shut down businesses um, and give people a day of rest. Um answer your 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 critics people will say oh it's unconstitutional you know you can't you can't do that um or why would you want to um why should we do it how should we do it and specifically like what's what's the actual roadmap for doing something like that yeah um i yeah so first of all um yeah again this this was something that was common in the past uh within this country to have that um have sabbath laws i I think the the best uh, the the best actual critique of that is not like oh this is crazy you can't that's just that's silly the 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 best critique uh is is basically that what you're doing is you're it's a de facto privileging of christianity because Mm -hmm. which religion has the Sabbath on Sunday. Well, it's it's Christianity, and so you're not doing it on Saturday. You're not doing it. so. You're yeah. you're you're uh, you're explicitly saying this is a Christian land, and we're going to all force you to obey some sort of Christian. Um, and so that's the best critique. And I would just say, uh, yeah, well, that it is. It, that's exactly what it does. Um, I would just like uh, uh, you know one of those things. I'm not going to reject their objection i'm just going to affirm it yes like that's what christian nationalism is uh, is actually saying we're going to privilege the true religion which is christianity and so yeah you are we are privileging a christian you know holy day in a sense every you know good presbyterian every every sunday is holy yeah. uh and we're going to do that because we're a christian nation is that that's that's the idea of, of, of christian nationalism so i'm not going to retreat to oh it's good for all and it's ever i mean of course everyone gets the day off yeah but yeah it, it is an explicit recognition of the kind of the uh of privileging of of christianity and yeah. and i think that's that's good uh because i think that Civil government is something ordained of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, civil power is something ordained of God, even though I do believe in consent and the people and a sovereignty of people and all that. But it's nevertheless, the power itself is something God grants to people. And that should be used for the good of people. And is there anything mm-hmm. is there anything better 
than uh, worshiping God and the sort of means of grace through the administration of word and sacrament um, that occurs on Sunday. So at the most, that's why I always say, I say Sabbath laws first, not because it seems like, not only because it's kind of the most convincing thing for people, because okay, you just get a day off, but also it, it directly relates to the very thing that is like the principal aspect of a Christian's life, which is mm-hmm. worship um, through the instituted church. Uh, and that's so that's why Sabbath laws are, but yeah, like the, the, the roadmap on, on how to get there. Um, I, my, my, I like to retreat and say that I'm, I'm a political theorist, so yeah. I don't know how to, I don't, I'm not a politician. <laughs> yeah. I don't <laughs> but, know if you get that option on this show. Yeah, I know. I can't, I can't <laughs> dodge the, um, yeah, I, I, I think that, uh, I, I don't know, um, the, the constitutional question on if there, what sort of challenges there would be, um, but and as I understand it, though, it is it is deemed constitutional as as a secular purpose. So if mm. if a, a county uh, or you know if a county or town wants to then uh, enact these laws, they would, as I understand it, they'd have to frame it in terms of kind of secular purpose. Yeah. Uh, and if they want to do that, then okay, fine. Um, the, you still it's, get the it's still achieve the it. same end. Yeah. And there is a secular purpose to it. So you're not exactly lying, um, but it's uh, the the your, the the, the better purpose, the higher purpose of it will be precisely the, you know, church church attendance, worship God. Yeah. I think the question is frequently asked, should the nations be Christian? Um, but I think the more specific question in your case is why should America specifically be Christian? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I think our, our history, our tra- uh, the American tradition, our American history is thoroughly Christian. Uh, I think the the arguments for the secular founding and secular America, I think, are just clearly false. Um, I mean, the the principle should is that yeah, like all nations ought to be Christian, uh, and I, I. But but more than that, I mean, to be more specific, the the, the civil government ought to, I, I think, privilege Christianity. Now, whether they ought to in, in the same way in every in every circumstance uh, is is kind of a, a matter of prudence. Mm-hmm. And there's some that, you know, if, if you're in a Muslim country and, and there's only a handful of Christians, it, it's probably not going to work well for if, if some, for whatever reason you're you're in power to now privilege Christianity because it would probably not go well for you. So there has to be an element of prudence. It, it, what I'm not advocating for is say here's here's a blueprint and and now the moment in your power you just enact it it's a matter of what are the principles what what are the circumstances on the ground and then uh going from there and enacting it um so but as with regard to the uh american history i think is it's obvious that that we have always not only been a christian country but understood ourselves as a christian country Mm And this is very clear from specifically the 19th century. I mean, not, not only like, so immediately after the founding, there were established churches, like I think I've said already, uh, the religious tests, but also just the society itself understood itself. It was, it was just, uh, it, it, uh, when people would say we ought to do this or ought to do that with regard to policy, people would often say not, oh, well, we should we should do this to become a Christian nation. It's that we are a Christian nation, shouldn't we do this? Yeah. And this extended itself all the way into early 20th century with the liberal Protestantism, the social gospel people. You'd think with like the sort of, the, the sort of people who talk like with the liberal Protestants and social gospel people today, you'd think that they would reject this idea of a Christian America, but they, they whole, wholeheartedly embraced the idea. Uh, because they said, hey, we are a Christian nation. Shouldn't we have this or that progressive policy? Yeah. So the, the assumption was already there. Uh, there was a a book came out recently, I think something like Inventing Christian America. And it said that, uh, I forget the guy's name now, the author, but he, he, he said that the idea of Christian America was invented essentially in the like Eisenhower administration. And it's just, I don't know how this stuff gets published, but the the idea that we were a Christian country far predates yeah. uh, um, the Eisenhower. There, there were, it's true that there were ways in which that period kind of brought about certain thinkings and, uh, uh, and th- like thinking and, and, um, and some ways to express Christian America. But prior to that, it was just basic accepted. 
there was uh, uh, around in the in 1860s there was a pro, there was a proposed amendment to the Constitution to say we are a Christian nation, and the argument was we are a Christian nation. Why isn't it in our in our you know constituting documents? Mm-hmm. Why is it not there? And it, it didn't actually. And uh, apparently Abraham Lincoln was receptive to it. Um, but uh, it never actually, in the end, passed. But the important point I'm, I'm making with that is simply that, well, yeah, the assumption was there. Uh, if we are a Christian nation, why wouldn't it? Why, why wouldn't we then put this in our, our government documents? So, yeah. um, so the, the point being is that if if you if you're a Christian and you're a, an American, then it is fully within the American political social tradition to say that my nation is a Christian nation. That we ought to understand ourselves as a Christian nation, and even to in, in ways act uh, such that we can, uh, you know, procure our good in that regard, like to mm-hmm. to, to to support the spiritual administrator of the church or whatever. Uh, that that is all within the bounds of the American uh, tradition. So something as I'm, I'm not saying, uh, just as top of my head, I'm, I'm not saying that we should now. Uh, remove toleration for non-Christians or Roman Catholics. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not, uh, and I say that not to kind of avoid the hysteria of it, yeah. but just it's it's actually a good outworking of Anglo-Protestant principles to extend religious liberty to people. So mm-hmm. as, I, as I see it, Anglo-Protestantism, by which I mean kind of the, the Baptist, Presbyterian, Anglican thinking on religious liberty uh, was something that developed over time from the 17th century up up into the 19th century. Uh, that was you see that in England, you see it in the United States, and this was a principal development of the Protestant understanding of uh, liberty of conscience in relation to um, fellow brothers in, in Christ. So yeah. it was once that, like Presbyterians, even Pre- even Presbyterians in, in the old days could look upon Baptists like your particular type Baptist, not maybe not some insane ones, but the, the regular kind of a, a Baptist you'd find in England and in the New World. And you could say we're brothers in Christ. Uh, the, now in, in New England in the old days, they wouldn't allow, allow them to have their own churches, but they but they were still aff- affirming them as a okay, you can join our churches despite this, this uh, difference. So there was this recognition of mutual faith between different theological traditions. Mm-hmm. And uh, from this, I think, developed into the 19th century where we could then have a pan, like a, what I call a pan-Protestant order, where we say this is a Protestant country and we're going to be kind of uh, think of ourselves as Protestant. We're going to act as if we're Protestant, but we're not going to say you're Baptist, you're out, you're Presbyterian, you're out, you're this or that. Yeah. We're just going to say we're Protestant and and, and but but not not as a not as a sacrifice of principle, I want to make that clear, but as a principle development of Protestantism itself. Yeah. So, so you're talking about, you know, kind of the different um, denominations, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Um, what is a Christian America, in your opinion, look like for we, we have um, millions of people of other faiths? You know, we have... Um, People who practice, you know, Islam. I mean, you have atheists too, which is, I mean, de facto a religion. Um, uh, what in 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 a Christian America? What do you do with those people? Yeah, uh, some people they they want to say, well, in credit, instead of Christian nationalism, we want Christian federalism. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I don't really care what term you use. I, I don't like that when people talk about Christian federalism when it waters down what I mean by Christian nationalism, but. Uh, Christian federalism, if you want to think along those lines, means that each state, each kind of locality would uh, kind of have within its uh, the ability to um, act uh, for or kind of regulate religion in some regard. So some places where it's a very diverse uh, county or state will have different laws than another. So so like you think Mm -hmm. I like I think like Idaho could probably if if uh, Christians had the strength of will and and could get get through it they they could uh, because of a, a certain homogeneity uh, th- they could I think establish some kind of Christian mm-hmm. state in some kind of pan Christian yeah. sense. Other states like California you couldn't probably do something like that. 
Yeah. Uh, and so it, I, I'm not saying once, you know, like one, like, one, like there's a blueprint for every single jurisdiction. So, yeah, you brought up um, uh, Idaho as an example, um, you know, talking about them being like culturally uh, homogenous. And I think there's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of um, uh, complaints about <laughs> about that particular um, stance, you know, uh, this this idea that a um, uh, pluralistic society, you know, is maybe not the key to success. Like it's it's good um, mm-hmm. for us to have uh, a culturally similar society of people who share the same um, values and and beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, can you you know draw the because you 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 mentioned you know culture and um, ethnicity, and I think when you're saying culture. Um, some people may be, you know, trying to conflate the two together, and this is how you end up being called all crazy manner of things. But can you <laughs> distinguish the two um, for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I so um, it's interesting. Uh, uh, I, I, in the book, I argue I, I have a different view of ethnicity. So instead of I, I kind of separate ethnicity and, and ancestral origin. So. And this is kind of uniquely sort of American. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that you can you can speak of people of different ancestry, but also a part of the same ethnicity. Um, so we, uh, and I, uh, um, uh, this is I think Americans have thought uh, this way for a long time. So originally, in like the, in the founding era, there there was a concern about uh, German Protestants. So ever they thought were an Anglican or or, or were a English main, mainly English com- uh, uh, country. How are we going to bring the Germans in? And eventually, there was uh, a sort of even with Germans and Irish, there was a sort of ethnogenesis that happened that you could just say some people didn't even know like you know they're part this part that, but there were uh, sort of ethnogenesis into being American. And then into the 19th century, there was, there were uh, more immigration, and there's concerns about okay, how are we going to have this like assimilation uh, with these people? And uh, but but the, the point being is that they're they're within like the American history, American tradition. There has been this sort of emphasis on uh, uh, this assimilation into becoming a similar people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's and that that happens largely through intermarriage. It happens through a uh, a lot of interaction uh, locally, uh, where you you uh, you are a part of a sort of common project. Uh, I, I like to talk in, in interviews like this. I like to talk about the idea that you have uh, that your grandfather worked with another guy's like you know you, you and I. North Carolina, whatever, you know, your grandfather worked here and worked with, you know, or they went to the they're in the same war together or the same unit or same, you know, whatever, the same division in Europe. You have these like common stories between people that that develop and strengthen like solidarity over time into despite like an ancestral origin going generations back, you could say we're one people now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think America is is having trouble is uh, part of our our struggle as americans now is we have been unable we're unable because of the massive in like influx of Im- immigration to really sort out that solidarity and have that solidarity yeah uh and i, I think in that, in that sense it's politically dividing us uh socially dividing us culturally dividing us and this is it's also it's not not just between you know uh, like whites and Hispanics, and it's it's dividing even like like white people are dividing as as mm-hmm. well, uh, and so there's all these like divisions form, and this is why I mean I don't, I don't think it's going to happen politically, but that's why I think we should just stop immigration, and this would yeah. this this wouldn't matter if it's from Mexico or from Sweden, uh, we should just have a uh, we need to sort out who we are, and uh, you know as it relates to like if you bring cultural and you know religious assimilation together um how would you know at this event you were speaking at earlier today you brought up um you know a hypothetical county that has um you know 90 percent christians and Mm -hmm. and 10 percent non-christians is is the goal for that you know 10 percent to culturally assimilate to you know identify as american and as christian um 
is the is the goal for them to do that? I mean, I think the I think that the the majority would hope that that would happen. Uh, yeah, and, and in some way, I think it they naturally they naturally would over time, unless it's uh, unless that ten percent is uh, I, I guess part of a like a religious minority that doesn't easily assimilate, mm-hmm. then, then they wouldn't. Um, but yeah, I mean the the nine the ninety percent majority, I, I think would would want that ten percent to kind of there'd be this. I, I mean there'd be a general desire for there to be unity, and I think there would be naturally be uh, uh, some desire for that. Um, but yeah, I mean it, it depends on e- like each like each situation uh, r- really. But, but but my point there was that the the ninety percent should be able to kind of arrange that county according to the the values and beliefs of the 90%. Mm-hmm. And to me it's it's absurd to think that it, that 10% of the population can somehow overrule uh this conception of the good of the 90%. Now not, now I say this in principle that that that's true. It could be the 90% have really bad values. Yeah. Um but still I think just in principle it's a good principle to say that the majority uh should not be kind of thwarted by this 10% that has different values. Now I do think that 10% should have toleration or some kind of liberty. Um, but nevertheless, the, the kind of core value setters of that place ought mm-hmm. to be the, the 90% in, in principle. What are some of the, some of the other, um, things, you know, I, I know you brought up early on like Sabbath laws, but, but what, and you know, we've, we've covered immigration. Um, and there are some, easy ones that you can pivot to immediately you know like the uh, abortion issue you know marriage but but what are some other make all the people mad like <laughs> what, what 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 are the other uh things that you think a uh, christian nation ought to do yeah so i mean my, my cop out is to say well it depends on the context but i, I, will, I will give you something um let's see <laughs> yeah I, I think uh i will follow i'll be a good liberal um, uh, I'll follow uh, the good liberal John Locke. Hmm. Um, he's a good liberal. John Locke, um, the founder of liberalism, he said that atheists should not uh, should be suppressed. Uh, that that um, that you should not extend toleration to atheists. And I'll, I'll follow that good liberal John Locke and agree. <laughs> um, uh, Disavow John Locke or else. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you hate atheists. Yeah. Um, but no, but seriously, I, I think something like that uh, in in a Christian a Christian land, it is uh, absolutely absurd that you'd you'd say that uh, uh, an atheist would be uh, like a you know a college professor or would be teaching kids in any way or would be a politician or or you know could hold public office. I, I know that would be shocking to people now, but it's it's also telling the fact that if we ever ever had a atheist president or i know we've had I mean, a publicly professed yeah atheist, right yeah. right like no we, uh, yeah. we never everyone we each one has had some kind of religious thing uh and perhaps they didn't actually believe in their heart but nevertheless they had to act out outwardly yeah. which is um not good for them but it's i think good for us at yeah. least uh so um it, you know so that might be shocking but actually practically speaking that's exactly what happens uh, i i just think that it ex- ex- should extend in policy uh, to places that would be would be um like like um you know like uh school bo- school schools that sort of thing mm-hmm. uh, as well so mm-hmm. like alexis de tocqueville uh, he, he says that he says plainly he says that um religion is so important uh, in in the United States, that you if you are not a believer, you essentially have to lie, mm-hmm. uh, and, or you have to just kind of still act, you know, lie, act as if you're a believer, because then you will essentially have you'll be ostracized and away from the community, and that that to me this is why I say that 19th century America, with all its problems, in terms of religion, religion and church state relations was actually uh, good in a lot of ways mm-hmm. because the it's there were no establishment and yet everyone is religious yeah so and it's kind of it's one thing that like uh tocqueville and others look at that and thought this is miraculous i mean every other place if you're going to be religious you have to have an establishment you have to have enforcement of these things uh, but america was unique in that it it actually 
you know, socially was encouraged and acceptable while the civil law was kind of had, you know, less heavy hand on. Yeah. On it. Yeah. I, um, I think one of the conclusions that, that is sometimes drawn, uh, from this discussion, I think incorrectly is that, um, you get a lot of people, especially, you know, uh, young guys who are kind of frustrated with the cultural and political moment we're in is to say, oh, if we just kind of rewind the clock to, you know, pre-sexual revolution, you know, so 1950s or, you know, insert sometime before then, um, then we could, you know, basically we just need to turn back the clock and 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 we'd be a lot better off. Um, How much of, you know, the the issues that we're experiencing now in our cultural and political moment are baked into the cake as it were um like from the founding you know things that we were uh always going to encounter um and what should um in your view you know america do to um solve those so you're you're asking is was what we're experiencing now kind of inevitable given yeah. the nature of the founding? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, I mean, that's a, that's a big question. Um, you said you're a political theorist. So. <laughs> yeah. I should have a good answer to that. Right. Um, so I, I no, I, I don't think, I don't think so. I mean, I mean, there, there are, I mean, it's, it's so complex, but I, I just, I don't think the founding was a secularist founding. Mm-hmm. Um, now there, there kind of is the question is, well, broadly speaking, is there something about, you know, that like Roman Catholics like to say this, is there something about Protestantism that makes it inevitable that you'll have kind of the moral insanity that we have now? The yeah. idea that you, okay, you start with, you start with it kind of sort of individualist religion and then, um, and then you, you, uh, emphasize re- religious liberty of conscience and this kind of grows into eventually you have, you have to tolerate drag queen story hour you know yeah. you, you see that progression and <laughs> uh, yeah i i don't think it, it's not inevitable with regard to the principles of the founding mm-hmm. and, and and that's that's clear simply because we have policies and constitutional interpretations that run directly contrary to uh i i think those principles so to say that you can't uh you can't have a student-led prayer prior to a football game a high school football game um saying that's unconstitutional is just purely insane yeah um especially in light of the fact that again establishments and all that after the founding, it was it was understood uh and not only that but people who were involved in crafting the first amendment themselves uh affirmed establishment in the state level so the mm-hmm. whole thing is just insane so i mean uh you you have uh uh, so I, I don't think it's actually uh, inevitable with regard to the principles. Now, is there some kind of like the movement of history that's, I mean, yeah, I don't even know how to like affirm or deny that. So, but I, I understand there is that, that like we tend to want to see there's see some inevitability in present circumstances given the past. I would just say that in terms of the principles, there's no like necessary, like you don't go from the founding to drag queen story hour. Yeah, agreed. I uh, I'm 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 curious to hear if you think the the solution then is to do we need to turn back the clock or yeah. do we need to um you know return to the roots and try to build something new? Mm. Yeah, I'm not a uh, return to the founders guy entirely. I'm not a yeah. purist in that regard. Uh, mainly because like thing I think things have changed. I think they overemphasized um they didn't I mean, at least in the official documents kind of overemphasized and it's not entirely true. I don't want to be misunderstood by some people on my side, but they overemphasized like some of the universals. So a decoration of like uh um uh, the the nature and nature's God. I, I mean I think that's all true, but I, I think what what that the way that that stuff's been interpreted has led, I think, us to accept this very expansive view of kind of common humanity where everyone can just come to the United States and all of a sudden they're going to, you know, affirm all of our principles within, you know, they're going to take a citizenship class or something like that. Um, that and I, I think that we we need to kind of adopt the uh, to affirm the universal principles of the founding, but also 
look more to uh, the particular ways of life. Um, I mean, even in America, there's diff diff different ways of life, but also kind of come to uh, rally and around and protect those. Mm -hmm. uh, th there's an overemphasis in what, you know, like universality, common humanity. Uh, there, you even see this in Europe, where I mean, America is unique, but even in Europe, it's it's like, okay, we're German, and all of a sudden, somehow people can immigrate to Germany, and all of a sudden they're German. Uh, mm -hmm. That that the, the the fact that it's it's getting to that point in Europe, and then you you look at America itself, uh, I think there it's uh, uh, the the sort of American mindset exacerbates that as yeah. well. That, and that's again, that's not to say I'm not like saying along racial lines or white nationalism. You know, I don't want, want to go on about the denial disavowal game and all that stuff. But um, but but again, I I think that even with like different ancestral, I grew up in California. Uh, the there were people Hispanics who had been in California a long time, and in terms of actually saying you're kind of part of the same people group, it was actually very easy in hindsight to kind of see that yeah we were despite the fact that they had Hispanic ancestry, I had you know the mainly English ancestry in California we were all kind of part of the same people um, mm -hmm. and. Um, so anyway, yeah, I think we should emphasize more of the particularity side in, instead yeah. of jumping back, which again, the founders actually did do that. They, mm -hmm. they did uh, more, in letters and other writings, they did actually emphasize the fact that no, we're English with English rights. Uh, one of the reasons for the founding was uh, for the revolution was precisely that the Continental Congress would say, we, we assert our English rights, we're Englishmen. So there was a sense in which they were understood their actual heritage in a particular way but yeah, yeah. you you mentioned uh catholics a few minutes ago and I, i'm I, you know i'm sure that they're watching everything that's been going on the last couple months with uh some interest um you know america is obviously a a protestant country i mean everything uh, uh, about it um like even the tendency toward individualism um is is protestant but um what role do they have to to play in this can you can you march you know arm in arm with with catholics to a christian nation um while i'm at it like what do you think of integralism like okay. <laughs> jump into some of those yeah people uh, are going to think i'm like a bats. protestant integralist exactly um, yeah i think i think the the protestant integral integralists are basically um one, I, th I think they're anti-American with regards. So they they want just heavy-handed administration. I mean, I'm, another thing, I I, uh, I still want a limited state. I'm still American. <laughs> yeah. uh, I want to distrust government to a certain extent with regard to its powers, um, and uh, and so I so I am an American. So I, in that sense, like I, I'm not a fan of the sort of administrative side of in integralism. Also, I think they're globalists. Uh, I, I don't yeah. think they represent, um, they, they're anti-Protestant and Anglo-Protestant. Uh, and I think they're globalists in the sense that they think that a, uh, a Catholic nation, a uh, Catholic country is just a bunch of Catholics. Mm -hmm. um, so they'd be okay with just importing millions of Catholics and say, well, here we are, <laughs> we're a Catholic country now. Um, so obviously I'm against that. So I think they are a form of uh, anti nationalist with regard to how I understand nationalism. Uh, and <clears throat> so, but let's talk about like Roman Catholics generally. Uh, there is of course like a long history in the United States of being anti-Roman Catholic. And uh, I, I think in most cases it was irrational, but in but I, I, do, I like to say though that it was understandable. And uh, it's, it's very common, like whenever this is brought up, they say, oh, there was bigotry because that's our, instead of trying to understand exactly what people were thinking at the time, we just jump to bigotry. We jump to this and that, whatever like, accusation. But I think it's understandable that Protestants uh, would, would kind of uh, have questions about Roman Catholics because of the fact that the Pope claimed for himself to have temporal power. I mean, this is uh, they, they. This this shows up in post Reformation, in particular though it it's originates um, centuries earlier. That the the Pope can he has the power because he's the kind of the origin of civil power on earth to 
to essentially depose kings by de- declaration or de- you know civil leaders by declaration. Mm-hmm. And the Pope did do that. And uh, not only that, but also could order the seizure of property um, from heretics, uh, could order the um, even like the execution. Uh, he could tell Roman Catholics, you no longer have to be loyal to your civil leaders. And this happened. I mean, even in the early days, like in Maryland, there was the big issue between if like the Pope literally said, if you sign the loyalty oath to the to the English king, you're going to be excommunicated. Mm-hmm. So there is this legitimate question can Roman Catholics, do they have a conflicted loyalty? Can they truly commit themselves to this country and to these leaders, or are they kind of beholden to a foreign monarch who himself is, according to Protestantism, is a, or is a sort of civil, has civil power, and in a sense can be like a, have a civil influence. You know yeah. what I mean? So, uh, so it's it's an understandable. You know, like historically, it's understandable that Protestants would be uncomfortable, especially with like the Irish immigration that occurred in the 19th century with Italian immigration. Are these can these people be good Americans? Mm-hmm. I think it's a legitimate question back, back then. Now, so, but I think moving forward now, papal civil power is weak. I mean, there's the Pope. Pope says, you know, he can't even ex- excommunicate someone who's, well, he won't, I mean, whatever. Um, I'm not sure if it would matter if he did try to say excommunicate Biden. That'd be really fascinating. I wish he would, but, um, but, but yeah. But, but today it's uh, it would be uh, not only irrational, um, but it wouldn't be understandable to say, okay, Roman Catholics, you can't be a part of this country. So, I, so I, the point being is that when I say like pan-Protestant. This could be sort of pan-Christian, where you do, act, in fact, have mm-hmm. alliance and um, work with Roman Catholics, and just be ju- be just as American because they've been Protestantized. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> in a way. I mean, uh, yeah, it, it's it, it's interesting. Like the, but uh, yeah. So I, I think in a way they've been Protestantized with regard to politics, and so they can be part of a kind of a Protestant yeah country. Well, hopefully they might not like that, but yeah. that's what I think has kind of happened. Yeah. Um, well, we'll see when the reviews are in. Um, <laughs> I, uh, it's interesting, um, the, you know, out of all the things that you've said, I mean, there's, there's a lot, um, uh, for people to have opinions on. I think it's funny the the thing that I've heard people, uh, screech the most about from the book, uh, is the use of the, the phrase, um, female adjacent. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Which, I, yeah, which, I guess I did use that. Yeah. In that yeah. Book. yeah. Uh, uh, tell us about like that. That uh, uh, I don't want to call it a controversy because I I don't really think it's that big of a deal. But uh, no. tell us about you know what what yeah. you mean, why they would take issue with that, and why so they're wrong. F- female adjacent. I mean, just like everyone on the right, online right, they have to be um, kind of ironic and funny. So female adjacent is is playing off of the idea of white adjacent, and what they say. Uh, like the left likes to say that Asians in the country are white adjacent. So what what explains the fact that Asians do well? They're you know they're second generation and yet they're they're doing better than you know most white people. What explains that? Well, they say well they're white adjacent. Yeah. So it's uh, they they they're model they're model minority that kind of thing. So it's a uh, to say female adjacent. It's a lot like that concept, uh, except that it's directed towards men. So men would be are female adjacent because not 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 just not simply because they would be kind of feminine uh but because they they take they they get their power their social affirmation from essentially uh praising praising women in in a way be uh, kind of be, becoming like adopting feminine sort of rhetoric mm. Uh, and uh, adopting kind of the more feminine modes of, of power, or at the very least, kind of supporting those modes of power. Yeah. Uh, so, a, a, like a, a a man would be when we debate, we're very kind of direct, assertive, and I think when Jordan Peterson said that, like behind like every interaction between men, there's like this willingness to fight. You know, to, mm-hmm. there is that. I, I think that was insightful, uh, even though he was beat up for. There is something to that. Um, that, that that men would be more kind of in your face, uh, man man to man type uh, argumentation, and uh, if I mean, there's just different like different standards, like a a, a guy like uh, 
dumping all his feelings publicly. That's kind of looked down upon. I want to kind of like cringe and move away from it. Um, whereas a, a woman who does that, uh, it's, it's, it's one of those things where now all of a sudden guys are, oh, are you okay? And yeah. th- there, there's a sense in which women can, can have, uh, within their mode of argumentation or public presence can have a sort of emotional, uh, kind of emotion filled rhetoric mm-hmm. that men cannot have. Yeah. Uh, and so the way that men, but, but when women are, uh, you know, treated as equal within a some sort of discursive, some kind of setting where it requires you saying, you know, uh, interaction. Um, there, the men then, in order to be kind of when when women kind of uh, dominate the discussion, there tends to then be men who will uh, be very affirmative of that sort of rhetoric. Yeah, like so. Are you know like oh he's uh, the guy who the guy who did, uh, um, didn't like your book he's he's a jerk mm-hmm. like or he you know I'm so sorry go, I mean just go on Twitter like if if you compare like my my the responses to me it's like all these accusations you don't see any guy you don't see any girl saying things like um, oh I'm so sorry Stephen that he's that these people are being such jerks to you I'm so yeah. sorry you don't see anyone doing that yeah but if you go to someone like Kristen Dumez's the Jesus John Wayne book yeah. And some guy like writes a review that's uh, you know negative to it, and then she posts something about it. It's like, eh, and then you look at the actual replies, and it's all these guys showing up saying, "Oh, I'm so sorry, Doctor Dumez, that um, that these guys, these jerks, are doing this." Are all but so there's a very there's a very kind of like so all that being said, like this female adjacent is like it, it's a way to be kind of affirmed uh, when the the mode of discourse is very feminine yeah and so the the guys will enter that and so th- that's kind of what i mean by female adjacent uh, and people were very upset by that <laughs> well it's, it's I, becoming it's becoming the point where because i think that we're in in a sort of de facto gynocracy meaning yeah. that, that women kind of dominate everything. oh that was the other one is also hated. true yeah. yeah it's also true in the church as well um and you know it's funny, like some some women who are kind of based, they'll admit this. So, like, yeah, the church, the church is totally dominant. Like, you could have a complementarian church, uh, and the women totally dominate the whole thing. So, but uh, it's, uh, but yeah, I mean, so in this like gynocratic setting, in like someone like like us, when we want to have a very assertive kind of aggressive form of argumentation, where but still rational. And kind of leave the uh, the emotion maybe a jab mm-hmm. here or there, but you know within a certain limits, and obviously not like freak out when someone disagrees with you. Um, that is not something you can do. Yeah, uh, it, it's in order to have acceptance within like this discursive space, you have to adopt uh, either feminine modes of rhetoric or support that mode through a specific like distortion of masculinity. So like chivalry is this idea. Are you okay? Well, you know, like that's the right idea. And, uh, and so guys have this like white, you know, it's called white knighting, like this white knight perspective where you're, it's a sort of distortion, like a sort of perverse chivalry where you end up just, um, uh, you know, calling these other guys a jerk because they disagree with you. Yeah. When I think you see this too, with like a lot of the big Eva types, you know, that yeah. just, I, everything is, you know this is so outrageous like how could you you know do (laughs) x y and z um i think it's really been uh adopted as uh really like regime rhetoric like that's the way it's all yeah it's all all talked about these days um i think one of the uh weaknesses uh of um you know christianity in in america um as it relates to their politics is that uh, it skews very heavily libertarian um and you get uh, a lot of um faithful like christian pastors you know great great guys not um disavowing anybody but um a lot of people who tend to err a lot more toward uh that side of 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 the debate um as it relates to Christian nationalism, where are the libertarians wrong? The, the the problem with libertarians, as I see it, is they don't see uh, they, they don't see that 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 the role of civil government 
is to act upon society so that the people in society can then fulfill their their human ends, their human purposes. And so the libertarians take this very restrictive principle that doesn't recognize kind of the fullness of what it means to be human. So I guess I'm appealing to more like a Thomistic, which isn't really a Thomist, but I uh, will be accused of that. But it's the idea that there that that there's there are there are ends of man, earthly and heavenly, and that the role of civil government is to act upon the society in order to aid them in the pursuit of those ends. Uh, and what what that means then is that that the the government um, prudently can can do more than just kind of enforce contracts you know mm-hmm. if there's something bad in society and the family can't take care of it effectively the church can't take care of it effectively uh and uh society just in general can't take care of it then then uh, the civil government ought to try to take care of it if they can so I, when i say prudently they ought to do it prudently uh because you can try to solve so you can try to fix some error or some or or eliminate some evil but actually create more evil through mm-hmm. the policy so you have to do it prudently and there's some things i mean everyone's recognized this there's some vices within a, a society that um no one's going to be able to fully crush yeah uh and so and trying to crush it would be would be um just produce more evil. Yeah. So I, I think that it's a the, the difference between like a libertarian and like a Christian nationalist, or not even Christian nationalist, just a, a classic like classical presbyter classical Protestantism. Uh, in terms of you know political thought, the it, it would be that yeah, government is there as a sort of um, aid and support for you and your community to pursue their 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 good. Mm-hmm. Um, so and and the good itself is not is not simply having this sort of expansive license, license to act. It's the support of you acting in true liberty. True liberty is you doing what you ought to do. It's not doing whatever you want to do. Yeah. That's license according to tradition. So anyway, and uh, with the current um, you know political and uh, cultural situation that we're in, um, do you think there is hope for future Christian America? yeah i mean it looks it kind of looks bad uh people ask me this question it's like you're writing this now i guess it would have been better decades ago right well I, you know uh, i'm only uh I'm, I'm not only almost 40 by the way but but uh but you know um yeah the the, the thing I, I tell people is that things kind of change quickly uh, i'm not calling for like a revolution is what people know mm-hmm. you call for no but like but things do change quickly um and i Part of what I'm trying to do in the book is not say that, hey, if, if you read my book and agree with me, then all of a sudden within a couple of years, we're going to have Christian America again. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what if, I mean, one of my friends like to ask me, what, what if there is a sort of revival in a community or state? Uh, what do you do then? What, what happens when you have a majority Christianity and uh, Christians within a uh, uh, a state or, or a county? What do you do? Um, so... That's one possibility. Also, just you just never know what's going to happen in the future, and so you want to establish these principles so that uh, you can actually en- en- enact something when mm-hmm. the opportunity arises. Uh, so it's, but but again, I mean, I guess the path forward, just in, in barring kind of any sort of major event, uh, I, I do think at the local level and state level is where. The, the, these principles that I'm outlining could actually be very useful, um, and we could see a lot of good in that regard. I, I think that, but once we see, I, I think that like state governors and state legislatures should see that they're not delegates from the federal government. Their their power. I think this is a point of like of 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 good Christian political theology. That the the power that a state governor and or state government has is a power that they have from God. Mm-hmm. It, it it's not a power that's derived from the federal government. So because of our federal system, it's not as if you have the federal government has power, and then they somehow devolve power upon the states. The states independently have a sort of sovereignty or power. That's why we we elect the governors and and 
they have this so they have this sort of power of god and of course there's constitutional constitutional arrangements that the states must follow in relation to the federal government um, but I, I do think, though, that instead of thinking, okay, well, we have to go along with what, whatever the federal government says because, you know, we're subordinate to the federal government, I think that misunderstands the fact that that the power of the states is independent of the federal government and ought to be used for the good of the people of that state. Yeah. Which means, I think, the states ought to do more resistant toward resistance toward the um, the federal government mm-hmm. um, with with its own power and. And how that how that plays itself out, I mean, is going to be depend on the state. But yeah. but at least that principle itself, once we kind of like rethink the nature of government power and federalism, uh, I think we can have success, also conflict. But um, if we have resolve, you know, a lot of success. Yeah. Well, Stephen, where can people uh, find you? Keep up with what you're doing. Buy your book. Yeah, I mean, you can buy just buy the book. Um, yeah, so I'm on I'm on Twitter mainly. Um, yeah, it's uh, at perfinjust. I don't know if you're gonna be able to P E R F I N J U S T. Uh, don't ask me where I got that from. Um, but yeah, so on Twitter, and that's about it. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. That was. Uh as the kids say, a pretty based episode. Um, <laughs> it, I had a lot of fun um, uh, recording with with Stephen. Um, a lot of very interesting conversations about the um, you know way that faith and and politics connect. I hope that you were uh, edified by this conversation. Gave you some things to to chew on. Um, I'm sure you know many of us uh, have thoughts and 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 disagreements, but uh, it is a very interesting. Um, uh, the book and, and this podcast, you know, a very interesting discussion, um, about the way our country is headed. Um, just one more plug for American moment stuff. You can find, uh, uh, more information about all of our programming and, um, publications and that sort of thing that we put out at AmericanMoment.org. Uh, you can find us on all social media platforms at AMMoment.org. Um, and you should also subscribe to this podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, click the little bell to be notified by all the cool, uh, clips, content, videos we put out, um, this very podcast. Uh, we thank you for listening and we look forward to seeing you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.